So even before the baby comes into the world, they're technically, in that sense, breathing. Um, and also, if we're going to claim that life and humanity is based on breath uh, in a very strict legalistic sense, really, what are we then saying about, you know, people who have asthma or people who have a lung removed because of cancer or effectively people who are on ventilators, as we saw during COVID? Are we saying that because they're unable to breathe, they don't have that breath of life, that they're not human, they're not people? Well, hello and welcome back to About Abortion. I'm Beth Davey and today I'm joined by Tim Lewis. Tim, how are you? I'm, I'm well, thanks, Beth. Yeah, this is this is a nice change. We love you, Dave. We miss you, but it's good to do something a little bit different with, with you, Beth. So yeah, glad to be here. Great to be here. Yeah, it, Dave hasn't just uh, transitioned into a woman. I am a different person. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, so today we're going to be exploring uh, quote-unquote pro-abortion scriptures, uh, passages in the Bible that pro-abortionists claim support abortion. But before we dive into those, um, I think it's good to maybe first readdress the objection that the Bible doesn't mention the word abortion. Uh, so how can we even talk about uh, abortion if it's not in the Bible? Tim, I know you and Dave have already done an entire episode on this. Would you maybe mind just, you know, in, in one minute, kind of re-clarifying why we can still talk about abortion even though it's not specifically mentioned in the bible yeah, absolutely and it's, it's a good thing to to get out uh, initially i mean i think there's of course a huge number of things uh, the bible doesn't mention explicitly or doesn't mention the term which we nevertheless feel qualified to speak on to speak into on the base of the broader uh, teaching of the scriptures uh, on the basis of, prin of principles which we see kind of very clearly elucidated in scripture. So, you know, I'm, I'm picking three things, for example, something like internet pornography, something like climate change, something like um, female genital mutilation. You know, these things are not mentioned in the Bible. You will, you know, you won't be able to find them. But I think most Christians would say that they're, you know, we have something to say into those different ethical or social issues of our time. Um, I suppose to, more recently, you know, with COVID, with vaccination programs, etc., most Christians, I, I guess, would have had little issue uh, with seeing uh, the need for a clear policy on such matters, for clear teaching from their individual congregation, uh, church, even though you look in vain for vaccine or lockdown in any lectionary, you know, it's not there. So I suppose that's the first kind of obvious point. I think perhaps more fundamentally even than that, we should recognise that the presence or absence of a particular theological term doesn't settle the argument as to the presence or absence of that concept within the scripture. So Trinity would be a, a great example of that, perhaps mm -hmm. a classic example of that. You know, Trinity is not in the Old or New Testament, the word Trinity, although you know, Orthodox Christians would say, well, the doctrine is is taught and is apparent in in various ways even though the term itself isn't used so i think that argument generally is 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 quite weak and towards the end perhaps we may get to this today we are going to see that perhaps 
there are some slight hints that abortion is mentioned in the New Testament. But yeah, I think they would be the kind of key things I'd want to say to someone who, who suggested that off the bat. Yeah, fantastic. So even though it's not specifically mentioned from the rest of the teaching of Scripture, we can still glean what God's heart is on this issue and then speak into it from Scripture. Um, so today we've, we're going to try and cover four passages that are commonly used as uh, biblical justifications for abortions. Uh, yeah, as I said, hopefully we'll have time to cover them all today. The first one really comes from the very first pages of the Bible. Um, I don't know if you've heard this claim before, Tim, but the claim is that Genesis 2-7 uh, says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So if life is defined as breath, therefore life begins when the baby takes its first breath. Have you heard of that claim before, Tim? Yeah, I have. I, I've, in, in works that were probably a little bit older than the contemporary situation, but, 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 but yes, I'm aware of it. It's yeah. a pretty extraordinary argument, but yes. It's, it's kind of doing the circulations on kind of memes and TikToks and things like that, where people right, like to okay. take so a verse. it's still very much... Yeah, take a verse out of context the and then claim, mm. therefore. Um, basically, abortion up to birth is justified because it's not until the, um, the baby takes their first breath that they can be called a living being. Um, I think this is quite interesting, particularly... Those who make this claim, they won't necessarily take the rest of Genesis as being a literal account of um, creation, and yet they take this um, account of the creation of man as being a literal account that then has to apply to everyone else, um, which seems a little bit hypocritical. And if we're going to do that, uh, take this description of the unique creation of Adam, um, then as being the, the basis for all creation of humanity, then really we're saying that in the same way all men should be created from the dust of the ground and all women created from the rib of a man um yeah there's there's no consideration that this was a unique event in time uh adam was created from the dust of the ground not from a sperm and an egg um he was also created as an adult ready to tend the ground naming animals being given the command to be fruitful and multiply you know no other human is created into that context and so we really can't then apply the same uh qualification for what made him alive to children um so if we want to know what the bible has to say about the beginning of life we really have to look elsewhere and tim obviously you could name many passages where we could go some 139 jeremiah 1 uh, even psalm 22 verse 10 but just to mention one uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 15 when the angel Gabriel comes to Zacharias and, and talks about um, the announcement of John's birth he says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and of course later we see John in the third trimester in utero leaping for joy in the presence of his Lord who's only in the first trimester clearly they're both alive you can't have a clump of cells that's already Lord um, and they're already people even before they've taken their first breath this side of the womb now tim i'm not um very much clued up on science but even just a brief look into this um i found this quote that the process of respiration in the biological sense of the transfer of oxygen from the environment of the living organism occurs even from the time of conception 
And so really what we're talking about here is the mode of respiration and breathing being changed, not just the fact. So even before the baby comes into the world, they're technically in that sense, breathing. Um, and also if we're gonna claim that life and humanity is based on breath in a very strict legalistic sense, really what are we then saying about you know people who have asthma or people who have a lung removed because of cancer or effectively people who are on ventilators as we saw during covid are we saying that because they're unable to breathe they don't have that breath of life that they're not human they're not people this is kind of where that slippery slope can can lead to in effect really isn't it i think you get into all sorts of yeah absurd conclusions as you as you've alluded to and you know obviously some babies are born with and they struggle to breathe initially and so they need oxygen and, and various kind of apparatus at the start of their lives to, to aid that process you know so again if you are going to be dogmatic about the fact that, that, that the drawing of breath uh, outside the womb is what constitutes one's humanity then then what are you saying of those newborn babies you know are they somehow mm. subhuman can we just do away with them as as the argument goes for um the little ones in the in the womb so yeah i'm i mean there's all everything you said there beth is 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 why that argument is faulty and problematic and i think you know if you're going to look at it again scripture you could say well actually scripture says uh, that life is in the blood uh, not in the breast actually um, leviticus 17 11 and and yeah in my uh research it suggested that the circulatory system is present from the third or fourth week of life but I think ultimately that's a kind of overly literal way to 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 interpret the scriptures, but I think it at least debunks that Genesis two uh, seven argument that equates life with with breath. Um, mm. So so if that's helpful, people to to remember. I think just very quickly the other thing I would I would say, and I think you covered really well how yet yeah, the creation of Adam is a unique event from inanimate material, the dust of the earth. Uh, whereas, you know, human beings are made from other human beings who are alive. I think one of the scripture I think I mentioned would be Ecclesiastes 11.5, which does talk about or acknowledges the, the presence of God's breath or spirit uh, in the unborn child. Um, so Ecclesiastes is obviously quite a difficult book. It's um, a lot of the time talking about the mystery of life and how often human beings actually their knowledge is very limited but ecclesiastes 11 5 says this as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child so a pregnant woman so you do not know the work of god who makes everything so the illustration really there is you know god is mysterious we can only fathom a tiny bit of creation and we're actually ignorant of the way a new life is created in the womb um obviously we know more now but but that there's still something that kind of defies there's a wonder isn't there to to creation and actually it very much locates god's spirit god's breath within that human life from from conception so i would all i would want to kind of if people want to quote selectively bible verses then i would ask them to explain ecclesiastes 11 5 using that sort of uh schema um i think as you said, again, I think what is going on here is a kind of selective cherry picking of verses with no real interest in the context and and probably without the commitment to the authority of that book or, or scripture in a broader sense that, that 
you know orthodox christianity would want to hold to i think the one other thing quickly i'd say about genesis 2 verse 7 uh the verse that that this faulty argument is kind of drawn from is that i think it does have a relevance to the unborn child but not in the way that the pro um abortion argument makes the point so genesis 2 7 talks of god forming uh, adam and and, and the, the verb there is yatsar in hebrew and interestingly that word is one that appears um in connection with the unborn child in scripture on a number of occasions so talking about the servant of the lord in isaiah 49 5 god calling him and forming him from the womb talking about jeremiah himself in jeremiah 1 5 that's the verb that's used there and it also crops up actually in Psalm 139, verse 16. So God's creative, I would say the link actually is that God's creative activity in initially, originally fashioning Adam, we kind of see those same concept, that same principle at work being replicated, if you like, in each and every pregnancy that happens today. You know, nothing less than a human being is being formed, exists in the womb from, from fertilization. So I think... Genesis 2-7 is relevant to this debate, but not at all in the way that a, pro, a pro-choice hermeneutic would, would argue for. So, yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, it, it does seem that I think the connection between all of these is really that they're taking things completely out of context, as you said, with no regard for the, the surrounding verses or even the integrity of the, the book or the, the biblical narrative as a whole. Um, but moving on, Tim, would you lead us into the second claim, please? Yeah, so I suppose this is one of the one of the most um, oft quoted scriptures that, ostensibly to support abortion from the Bible, which is Exodus 21 uh, mm. verses 22 to 25. And I'll, I'll read them in a moment. Um, just again, the, the context is this is a part of uh, Exodus called the Book of the Covenant, and it's kind of a section of lots of little different laws, case laws, really, covering all sorts of different scenarios, you know, from stray livestock to to all sorts of things. And, and this particular case is about a pregnant woman who happens to be caught up in a brawl. Um, so the idea that it's a, that it supports abortion and this kind of woman being accidentally injured is pretty, pretty farcical, really. I think at most the passage states that the penalty for killing a child in the womb is is somewhat less than the penalty for killing the mother but i think even that is is debatable so i'll read the scripture from the NR, nrsv version mm, which is yeah. not i think the best version but i <laughs> but it's the reason for doing that is because is i think the argument is often made on the base of this kind of translation so this is exodus 21 beginning to verse 22. when people who are fighting injure a pregnant woman so that there is a miscarriage and yet no further harm follows, the one responsible shall be fined what the woman's husband demands, paying as much as the judges determine. If any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, strike for strike. So, as I say, even if this is what Exodus 21-25 actually states, which is very debatable, and it's debatable because the word miscarriage is not in the passage, the word further is not in the passage in the Hebrew, it's hardly an argument for abortion because the destruction of the unborn child, even on this reading, 
is still a criminal offence. Mm-hmm. It's liable to a financial penalty. It's it's illegal, you know. Yeah. So and how it's, and it's in, an Ill- un- yeah, sorry. Sorry, I was going to say just point out it's also unintentional. So they're not intentionally exactly. taking the life of the child. It is still an unintentional killing of the child if it is, um, if that is in the passage. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, precisely. So it's a unintentional action for which someone is still deemed criminally liable and, and mm. has to pay a fine so how you get from that scenario to a kind of proof text for um elective abortion on demand up to birth whatever the, the latest craziness is is it escapes me really but i think we have to recognize that this is what people are arguing so but if we drill down a little bit more into the passage um yes so i think at most this is not really where i see it but at most i think what you could reasonably advance is that there's a difference drawn in legal terms in the state of the victims between the adult mother and the unborn child which accounts for these alleged differing punishments but because we know from elsewhere beth in the old testament of course just how precious the unborn child was you know they are very much seen as god's handiwork uh job 10 psalm 139 not to be lightly destroyed um the other thing i think we have to realize and this is where the context is really helpful that several points in Exodus 21, so the chapter um, from which this little passage case law comes, the death of non-free Israelites, so what we'd describe as servants or slaves, is dealt with. Uh, in fact, in two verses immediately before this and right at the end of the chapter. And there is a clear disparity in punishments when these victims are servants or slaves compared to when they happen to be free Israelites. And in verse 21, in fact, that the slave is called the property, literally the money of the free Israelites. And we would naturally balk, balk at that. I think we, we find that very difficult. But that just reflects the social framework in which Israel existed and in which these laws were given. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the kind of culture they're coming out of. But the point is, I think, what we would say of these laws today is, does that imply that slaves are somehow less human than, than a free person? Well, of course not. And no theologian, no biblical scholar would ever make that argument today. You know, they wouldn't turn to Exodus 21 and say, oh, guys, we found a proof text for slavery here. It's, it's OK, because look, Exodus says this. No. Thank you so much for listening this far into this week's episode of About Abortion. I do hope you're finding these helpful. If you are finding them helpful, can I ask for your help in getting these messages to more of the people who need to hear them. This is the only podcast in the UK addressing the greatest injustice of our time. And we're delighted that these podcasts are delivered free of charge, uh, but they're not free to make. It costs about £300 a month to produce these podcasts. And if we had just 50 people um, donating around six or seven pounds a month, uh, that would cover our costs. It's about the same cost as an Amazon Prime subscription or a Netflix subscription, would you consider giving six or seven or eight pounds a month to help us continue to deliver these messages and to be voices for the voices? We'd so appreciate if you could like, share, comment, subscribe, and uh, thanks so much. And we'll let you get back to the show now. No one would ever make that argument, yet it's exactly the same kind of argument being used in advancing Exodus 21, 22, 25. It's a kind of proof text for abortion on the basis of the lesser humanity of the unborn child so i think we've got to just realize the kind of yeah the inconsistency that's going on as i say at best or at most rather what i think you could do with this passage is say well it's maybe possible to talk in terms of 
different legal statuses so maybe a lesser legal status mm -hmm. uh, for the unborn child but again likewise for the, for the slave but never a kind of in terms of a lesser ontological status so if a slave is a human person which of course he or she is then so is the child in the womb and I as I say I don't think you'd find any credible biblical theologian who would want to argue against that today so at its most kind of radical that's I think what you could say but I think and this is where I'm going to read you another translation of the passage in a moment because I think actually you can interpret the Hebrew differently and, and actually more faithfully and a different kind of understanding of the passage emerges when you do that and far from suggesting a miscarriage I think the passage is more likely about the um the, the premature birth of a live baby um so as I said, uh, translations like the NRSV that speak of further harm to the mother mislead us actually because the word further isn't in the Hebrew. It's added to kind of clarify this idea of miscarriage, which again isn't in the Hebrew. So it's kind of saying, well, there's a miscarriage and then any further harm must be to the mother. Mm. But that is just not what um, really naturally a natural reading of the text would produce. And the word for miscarriage um, is not used here it does it is used in exodus 23 verse 26 so if you want to look at that that's that's a normal the normal word for miscarriage and that's what it means but in this passage it isn't at all the verb is really literally just means to come out like you might come out of a house uh, in this case the children come out of their mother's womb that's the idea so this verb never on its own refers to miscarriage or stillbirth the only times it does there's additional qualifications to make it clear that the child is already dead mm. again we don't find that in exodus 21 so on its own the word would describe the healthy births of living children in fact it's the word that's used for jacob and esau when they're born um, in exodus 25 it's also the word that's used for the twins tamar and perez um sorry zera and perez in uh, genesis 38 it's used of Job in Job 1 and 3 and of Jeremiah himself in Jeremiah 1. So a kind of plain reading of the text wouldn't lead us at all to think that the child is, is dead at this point. And the word, in fact, for children is just the usual word for a child once uh, he or she has been born, uh, yeled in, in Hebrew. So again, there's a I would say there's a strong emphasis actually on the humanity of the child at this point, which again, I think makes that miscarriage interpretation even less likely. There is a word uh, that's used in Hebrew three times for a stillbirth or a miscarriage, and that is, occurs in Job 3, Psalm 58, and Ecclesiastes 6, but again, it isn't in this passage at all. So there's huge problems, I think, with the NRSV translation and translations like it. And I think if you find a translation like the ESV, so the English Sound Version, which is a much more, a much more kind of literal uh, interpretation of the text, and much closer therefore to the Hebrew, I think that kind of translation is to be preferred. And so if I read the first, I won't read the whole um, eye for eye bit again, but the first verse of that, so verse 22 says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, i.e. no harm to the child or the mother, the one who hits her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband uh, shall impose upon him and he shall pay as the judges determine. So do you see how that totally kind of changes the mm, interpretation? Yeah. Um, the, 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 the perpetrator is essentially fined for the distress cause, which of course would be a tremendous 
uh, stress to cause a, a premature birth, especially in the, that context where there just wasn't the medical facilities and, and care that we have today. And then additional penalties apply if there's, you know, further injury or, or even death. And I think it's clear that it's to the mother or the child. Um, probably what it means is that um, if the mother or child was to die, um, life for life, I think we also see within this bit of Exodus that life, that life capital punishments can be commuted to financial punishments. So that's perhaps what would have been what would have happened, again, given it's an accidental thing. But the mother and child's life are very much put on the same level. Um, so I realise that's been quite quite a lot of detail, but I think it's important to see uh, what's going on. And actually, when when we understand the passage, uh, how it was actually written originally, a lot of these kind of ideas fall away. So I don't think there's any argument against the full humanity, against the full personhood of the child in the womb, even less does it provide any kind of biblical warrant for abortion. If anything, Beth, it suggests the opposite, I would say. Mm. Yeah, it shows how... Um vital it is that we don't just read from one translation really doesn't it because we uh there's often um those kind of uh, dynamic equivalent interpretations as well as the more literal word for word interpretations um which get we, we kind of need to, to be using multiple versions in order to uh figure out what's really going on in these texts if we can't read greek and hebrew which i'm sure a lot of people can't i'm not saying that everyone needs to go out and learn to read Greek and Hebrew in order to understand what the Bible's saying. But um, no, absolutely. <laughs> it's not as simple as just Sorry. taking taking the one verse from one translation um, and assuming that the, the interpretation that they've given is the correct one, really, isn't it? I think that's right, and especially whenever you have a controversial you know, uh, teaching or, or, or doctrine or idea, then of course you'd want to examine a few different translations. You'd probably want to read a good commentary, you know, someone you trusted as a biblical scholar. Yeah, I think just taking a snippet or soundbite from the internet is probably not the best <laughs> way to, to, to kind of construct the theology of anything really. But yeah, thanks. Mm. I mean, that that problem is going to crop up again in this next uh, claim that we're, we're going to see. So this uh, third claim, it's one of the most common I've come across. Um, there's lots of videos on YouTube and TikToks. So it's really making its rounds. Uh, and it uses an obscure passage from Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 to 31, uh, in order to claim that God ordains an abortion-producing potion as a penalty for unfaithful wives. Uh, is, again, is this one that you've come up across, Tim? Yes, it is. I mean, it is, as you say, it, it's it's difficult. And I think if the problem in the first passage that the Exodus 11, sorry, Exodus 21 was really about trying to identify who the victims were, was it just the mother or was it the mother and the child potentially? I think one of the biggest problems here with the Hebrew is actually trying to um, identify the various, you know, the various body parts that are referred to, to put it a little bit graphically. So again, <laughs> The translations will differ on, on on where we have mentioned of thigh and womb and stomach mm. and stuff so there is some there is a little level of, of complexity and, and, and confusion and i think it is really important to point out just how unusual this is a very sort of famous um comment rabbinic commentator nachmanides says this is the only law in in scripture certainly any law in the 
first five books of the Bible that involves a kind of divine miracle for its efficacy. You know, so essentially, this isn't about some kind of primitive abortifacient, which the priest makes from water and scrapings from the floor of the tabernacle. This is more like God's kind of going to give the verdict and and the water that the woman imbibes is, is almost incidental to the judgment either way. So it's a very unusual case. Um, yeah. And certainly, I think the most obvious thing to point out at the start is there's no mention whatsoever that the woman is with child. There's no mention she's pregnant. The Jewish, early Jewish tradition nowhere assumes that the woman is pregnant. So to take this as kind of being about abortion and or, and, and or miscarriage, I think is pretty speculative from the get-go. <laughs> Indeed, and and I also think that to complain to to claim that the potion uh, will produce an abortion, uh, you'd, it's given to the guilty and the innocent woman at the same time. So, um, are you going to say that for one person it it's it does produce an abortion, um, and for another person it doesn't? Then the efficacy isn't in the the drink itself, is it? The the efficacy um, is coming from somewhere else. So it's not actually a justification for giving an abortification um, as they claim. Um, I'm aware that we are s starting to run out of time, Tim, so maybe we can't go into this quite as in as much detail, but sure. as you said, it really does come down to that translation of um, her belly will swell and her thigh will rot as, as she's given this drink. Uh, what is that curse that comes upon her? The NIV says her abdomen will swell and her womb will miscarry. Um, so that's really where this justification is coming from, is that translation of the NIV of that word. Um, womb will miscarry. Other translations say thigh will rot, um, her, her thigh will shrivel. Um, there, there is a lot more going on here than just saying that the womb will miscarry. As you said, there's no um, mention here that the woman is pregnant, even the Jewish Mishnah uh, prevented this ritual from being carried out on pregnant women. So, so there is uh, further external evidence that if the woman was pregnant, she wouldn't undergo this this ritual to see if she would she had committed adultery against her husband. Um, and I think what what it boils down to is the blessing if the woman is found innocent is compared with the curse if she is found guilty. Uh, the blessing being that she will conceive and have children. Um, so the equivalent in the curse being that basically she'll be barren and won't be able to conceive. And so it seems a lot more that it's about f uh, future fertility, really, rather than an abortification to get rid of, uh, as people claim, an unwanted pregnancy. Uh, there seems to be no indication at all of an unwanted pregnancy. And indeed, it's it's a judgment and a test for adultery. So completely different context uh, to that which it's often used in order to justify. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I'm conscious of time, but I think very quickly just to add to that, yes, I mean, categorically, the word, the, the usual verb for miscarry is not in this passage, so so that's a poor translation from the NIV, really. Um, yeah, I, I think if you look at verse 28, it talks about future conception, you know, if she hasn't committed adultery, she will be free to conceive, not her pregnancy will continue, you know, which you would have thought would have been the case if she had been pregnant. And, and of course, even if she, you know, she was pregnant, how would one ever be able to tell whether this child was conceived through her husband or through this illicit liaison? So there's, there's, there's huge problems. I think it's hugely speculative. There's just no basis in the text for that argument at all, for all the reasons you said there. Yeah. yeah. And 
as you said, Tim, the, ultimately the judgment is in the hands of God uh, in this passage. There's, there's no point an instruction to kill a child or to take that responsibility for judgment into the hands of the people uh, participating. Indeed, it was in order to take that judgment out of their hands where a woman could so easily have been divorced or even killed, stoned to death, uh, oh. even at the accusation of adultery. Really, they're taking the ability to end a life out of the hands of humanity and putting judgment of sin in the hands of God. Um, and so, you know, how can we take that back out of God's hands and say that this is justifying um, us to decide whether we end a life? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's one of those texts that you, it, it can come across. Taking it as a bold text can come across as, oh my goodness, what is this awful patriarchal text? But I think exactly what you're saying, I think actually, if anything, it's, it was about more... Pre the original intent actually was to protect women mm. from, from all sorts of unfair accusations or even lynchings. Yeah. So, so I think that's a really good point to make there. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Tim, do you have any uh, kind of final comments you'd like to make just... Um, from what we've discussed, uh, trying to use these scriptures to justify abortion. Yeah, I mean, and obviously there's there's more we could have, there's, uh, there's another one we could have touched on, which maybe we will another time, and then there's there's material in the New Testament. I think that the takeaway, the conclusion really, in a nutshell, is that there's certainly, there's no way you can, you can come to the Old or New Testaments um, with with a kind of open mind and and find formations uh of abortion there i think it's something you have to read into the text is what we call would call eisegesis so it's reading something into the text not exegesis not what's kind of coming naturally out of the text and i think you know god's people uh we mentioned sort of judaism but god's people in terms of the church from day one have understood that there's no uh there's no argument for abortion in the scriptures old or new testament and that has been the, the church's consensus from the earliest times well into the 20th century you know pro-abortion christian voices pro-abortion christian arguments are really a complete innovation and i think we have to stress that of the last few generations born i would suggest more of the kind of sexual revolution the 60s and a certain view of, of freedom a certain view of bodily autonomy mm -hmm. than any serious understanding any serious commitment to the text of scripture as we have it i think that's the bottom line yeah i i agree i think uh it it definitely perhaps it takes christians off guard who maybe aren't quite as familiar with these passages they often take more obscure passages that um christians haven't spent a lot of time in but at the end of the day i think it's um key that we actually get into scripture that we understand what the word of god is saying uh, in its wider context, so that when people maybe come and throw a verse out at us, um, even if we don't know off the top of our heads, we can say, hang on, that's not going to shake me, because I know I, I can go back, I can understand what's being said um, in the context, and and it's not going to change my mind just because someone throws a verse without knowing what what's really going on there um, in order to try and convince me. Um, to abandon my pro-life beliefs uh, because the Bible is apparently pro-choice. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Tim, for joining us. Um, perhaps we will uh, reconvene at another point to, to continue through the scripture, uh, as you said, looking more into the New Testament as well. We focus really here on the Old Testament passages, but it would be great to have a look at the New Testament as well um, and to see what that says.
Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Beth. Appreciate it. Thank you.